0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. This is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Today we begin a new series for um, what we call the spring semester. I guess one way to put it is we begin a new series for the winter season, but we call it the spring semester around here, given our location. And the name of the series that uh, we're going to be involved in is a gospel series, and the title of it, I think it'll come up here in a moment, um, is The One and Only. You'll notice the cross, you can't see that image very well, but you'll see a cross that's uh, sliding through uh, or interjected into a crown. The cross of Christ and the crown of glory. And you see at the bottom, if you can see it, uh, words that come from this gospel. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our series will not be a series exclusively from John. It will be a series that moves throughout different gospels to portray the life of Christ. But we begin with John 1 for a very specific reason. And we use the phrase, the one and only, for a very specific reason. And here it is. When, when a story is written, typically it has an introduction of some sort, right? You've got a preface and all that kind of thing. But the real story starts most of the time in chapter 1, at the beginning of the story. You hear words that set the story up right? For instance, you've heard these words many times. Once upon a time in a land far, far away. That usually sets up a fairy tale. Not always, but most of the time. That's kind of the lingo, right? Or perhaps you've heard words like these. The year was 1937. That basically is setting up sort of a, a historical novel, Maybe a real history, or maybe a historical fiction, but its setting is in history, so you kind of know what's coming. Or maybe you uh, recognize words like this that might begin a book. It was a dark and rainy night, right? It was a dark and rainy night. What what does that indicate? It indicates that somebody's about to write a drama, Right, It might be a detective story, it might be something else, but you kind of know up front there's something different about this story than the fairy tale, and something different about this story than it happened in 1937. It was on a dark and rainy night. When we come to the Gospels, it's just intriguing how each Gospel begins. For the most part, Matthew and Luke begins at the beginning of Jesus' life. That's where you find in the Gospels the birth narratives, for instance. You don't find them in John, you don't find them in Mark. So those two Gospels begin with Jesus at birth or an announcement of his birth, and then move as a part of the trajectory through the history of his life right up to the crucifixion and resurrection. Mark's Gospel is a little different, it doesn't start with birth narratives. It doesn't start with Jesus even being a young boy. It starts with Jesus when he announces his ministry, basically. And it starts abruptly and it says, Mark says, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here we go. Hang on to your seat. Because I'm going to move through the history of Jesus' teachings and life very quickly. It's going to be spot on and it's going to move. And that's the way John reads. I mean, excuse me, Mark reads. But John different from all the other three. John doesn't begin with birth narratives. John doesn't begin with the adult life of Jesus and the announcement of his ministry. John begins before the beginning. To put it another way, John doesn't begin with Jesus. John begins with the second person Of the Trinity the Christ the Son of the living God and the way John begins his gospel is curious at least to us maybe not curious to you but still to me it seems curious he says in the beginning was the word why not say the Son of God Why not say second person of the Trinity? Well, we know the reason for that because Trinity hadn't even been developed in terms of a word. The idea was there. We'll see. Why didn't he use some name of Jesus that everybody would recognize? Well, in a way, he did. Let me put it this way. When John said the word was in the beginning... We understand him to be speaking about Jesus Christ. But why would he use that introduction? First, there's a, a reason that comes from the Old Testament. Why use word as the designation? The reason comes from the Old Testament first. In the Old Testament, a word, it was different than what we assume word to be Now, we assume a word to be something that we use. And, quite frankly, often something we manipulate. And we don't think it has any inherent power in itself. They're just words, and we choose them. But in the Old Testament, and in ancient times, it was different. Word actually had power. Word had force. And there was activity to word. Words did something. One person has put it this way. He said, the spoken word was fearfully alive. It was charged with energy. Charged with power. And it was sent. Not unlike an arrow is sent from a bow to its target. That was the notion of word in the Hebrew understanding of word. Maybe that's why uh, Hebrew has so few words. They're very important. And they're well selected. And to a certain extent, more ambiguous than Greek. Get this, Hebrew has roughly 10,000 words. Greek has roughly 200,000 words. I'm not even going to get into other languages. Hebrew understood words to be so important that there were only 10,000 of them to communicate every idea. And frequently, when word was used, it communicated the presence or the being or the activity the power, the action of God. For instance, just a few references uh, from Genesis. You'll recognize these. God said, word, spoke, word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The word created. Or how about this phrase? By the word of the Lord... The heavens were made. The heavens were made by his word. That's from the Psalms. Or how about this, also from the Psalms. He sent forth his word and healed them. It's as though the word itself sent forth from God is an emissary that creates an activity that ends in healing. It's an extension of God. Or, how about this one, also from the Psalms? He sends his commands and his words run swiftly. You ever used, you ever used a word like that? Have you ever said to yourself, I'm going to say something so my words will run swiftly and hit their target? I, I don't think that way. I just say stuff. And sometimes it hits the wrong target. <laughs> And it's the opposite of what I meant to communicate. Or let's, let's move from the Old Testament to the New just once. And remember this word from someone who wanted his servant healed by Jesus. What did he say to Jesus? He said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to come. Your word has power and force and it goes somewhere. And it accomplishes something. Okay, so John uses this this thing called word, or the word, and it grows out of that context, right? So a Jewish audience is going to understand something we don't about the use of word. That's the first part. There's another thing to consider about when and where John uses the reference to word. He uses the reference to word in an era where Hebrew as a language, even among the people of Israel, was languishing. It had almost fallen out of the common vernacular. For the most part, a person who was Israeli would have been speaking Aramaic. And unless they were highly educated in, a, in some sort of traditional Hebrew tradition, like Pharisees or Sadducees or among some rabbi, he or she might not really understand very well Hebrew. And so, when they gathered together in their synagogues, they would read the Hebrew scripture. But then, and this was introduced a good bit before Christ. Then, after the Hebrew scriptures were read, they would literally read something else called a targum. And a targum was an interpretation or a translation and kind of both. Of the word that was just read, and that targum would have been read in Aramaic. so here's the word, the Word of God read in Hebrew, and here's the interpretation or translation of what you just heard. now here's another interesting and curious thing about the history of word. Are, are you with me? You don't look like you're drifting, okay um, Here's another interesting and curious thing about the history of word. It's this. In this context, the Hebrew context with the synagogue and the Targum and Aramaic, there was a a serious concern among the leaders that somehow God would be debased and would seem too human. He would be anthropomorphized too much. Heaven forbid that God should be human or look like human. Actually, that wasn't so much a Hebrew concern as it was a Greek concern. And these Hebrews, who are affected by Greek culture, undoubtedly are affected by this idea. And so the Targum almost completely consistently translates anything in the Hebrew scriptures that sounds like God being human or interacting with humans as if he were human. They translate it differently. And you know how they do it? They say the word. Listen to this. Both from Genesis, the Pentateuch. The text, the Hebrew text, our Bible, will read this way. Moses brought out the people to meet God. Hey, that's pretty human. It's almost as though Moses said, God, come on out. I want to introduce you to Josiah. God came out to meet the people. And the Targum said, oh, that's just too much. That humanizes God too much. So what did they do? They retranslated it this way: Moses brought out the people to meet the Word of God." Do you see what's going on in the Targum? They're taking God, God himself, and using, for purposes of language, the Word of God to identify God. Second one, and that, that's the last one, the Sabbath says the Old Testament, is a sign between, and God speaking to Moses and to the people, the Sabbath is a sign between me and you. Oh, that's just a little too close. That sounds like a personal covenant between two people. Maybe a friendship. And the Targum said, that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. God's not a person, so let's change it. And the change was, the Sabbath is a sign between my word and you. A translation for God, the word. So we have the Jewish tradition, the, the, the ancient Jewish tradition. Then we have this tradition within the tradition, the Targum, the Aramaic. Okay? Then we have alongside that an entirely different tradition that you just might call the Greek tradition that informs this notion of word. So what is the Greek tradition? Well, the Greek tradition is various, right? There's lots of Greek philosophers. Many people have contributed in one way or another. I only use one person to illustrate the way in which the word is used in Greek. And I mean in the Greek tradition, Greek philosophical tradition. It's easy. Please don't check out. It's really easy. Hang on. This is all going to become practical in a minute. I promise you, okay? Here we go. The Greek tradition, among other places, can be found in a philosopher called Heraclitus. Okay? Heraclitus said concerning the world itself that this world is in a constant state of flux. It's always moving. It's always changing. Nothing is ever the same. As a matter of fact, he said, you can't step into the same river twice. Right? Right? Because it's not the same river anymore, everything's changing. Now if that's true, Heraclitus understood that there was also a potential problem with that understanding of the world. What was the potential problem if you viewed the world that way? The potential problem was everything was in a state of flux and there was really no order behind it all. No system, no telos, no end, no anything that made order out of chaos. What are we going to do about that? And so Heraclitus and others, they said, flux, which is what you experience on a daily basis in the universe. Flux, everything in change is ordered and controlled by something else, namely, divine mind or reason or the loose equivalent of God. Another way Heraclitus and some Greek philosophers would have put it is why does humanity, if everything is chaos and not orderly, if everything is in a constant state of flux and really has no meaning to it, why in the world does Humanity itself, which is routinely observed by every single culture in the history of the world, why does humanity have within itself the ability to recognize truth? Why does humanity within itself, in every culture, come up with moral conditions, good and bad? Why does humanity in every culture absolutely have a conscience? Where does that come from if the whole thing is nothing but a state of flux? Heraclitus said, from the Logos of God. Logos is the Greek word for word. From the word of God. Now clearly Heraclitus, don't get it confused, was not talking about the Hebrew God Yahweh. Right? Right? He's talking about mind, reason, some form of deity out there that really is quite hard to define according to his terms. But you see what's going on in the Greek culture, right? The notion of word is essentially linked to God. You don't say word with a capital W to use our transliteration in in English. You don't say word with a capital W without linking it to God. Word is God. Logos is God. God is Logos. They're they're together somehow. So, when John speaks these words, all three of those traditions help us to understand what he means. The Jewish tradition, the Targums, and the Greek tradition. And when we hear that, if you haven't thought of it already... Pretend like you have. Have an aha moment on your face. Oh, that's it. That that should be happening inside your mind. You should be saying, oh, oh, I get it. That's why I use the word, word. So John uses the word, word, and he's talking about Jesus. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Who is the word? Not not just Jesus, but in terms of very being and essence, who is the Word? Who is the Son of God? John tells us, "In the beginning was the Word." Now, anything before the beginning, according to the Hebrew tradition. Is eternal there's no point before the beginning where history begins the beginning is the beginning of history itself so when John says the word was in the beginning John in effect is saying this thing called the word that I'm naming for you in this life of Jesus this thing called the word is eternal He was before time, which means to be eternal, to precede time. Then John goes on to say, the Word was with God. This eternal Word, which was before the beginning, was with God. Do you notice what's going on there? He didn't say at the outset, the Word is identical with God. He said the word was with God, indicating a mysterious individuality. The word was with God, in relationship with God, beside God, at God's right hand. The word was with God. That is, second person of the Trinity, with God. The third thing he says is the word was the agent of creation. It was because of the word that all things were made. And without the word, nothing could be made that was made. Because the word is divine. And one of the characteristics of divinity, godness, is absolute creativity. I don't mean to create something out of things you have on hand materials and mix them up together and create something. To create out of nothing. To be the creator. The Word was the creator, says John. That's who the Word was. The Word was there before the beginning. The Word was with God. Absolutely, absolutely inseparable from God, but different. And the Word was the agent of creation. Nothing could have happened Or we later learn nothing does happen without the presence of the Word, both creator and sustainer. In Him, that is the Word, was light and life. And without light and life, nothing exists. Without the Word, nothing exists. Without the Word. Nothing exists. When have you ever heard that designation given to a prophet? Or a miracle worker? Or a saint? Or an angel? Let me tell you when you heard it. Never. John says that's who the Word was. And he says one more thing. We we could, you know, you know what's frustrating to me? When I start a series and I start, I think, oh my goodness, what in the world am I trying to cover 18 verses for? Right? Every one of these verses could be a sermon. And we, we could do it. I think, you'd stay with me. I know I could do it. I could be excited about it. I'm not sure you'd stay with me, but I can see it when I'm looking at it. But anyway, one other thing, one other thing among others that he says. Not only was the Word in the beginning, from the beginning, not only was he the creator of all things, not only was he light and life without him, there is nothing. The Word. And this is a stunning reality of the history of the christian religion the word all that eternality became flesh became flesh didn't just create a phantom that he could be a puppet for the word the word became flesh That's what we celebrated at Christmas time. That's why we always have the baby in the manger. That's why artists always have the halos around the baby. Because right there, in the flesh, in the crying, burping, eating, pooping baby, is God. He became flesh. That's who the Word is. Now, for the last question, what difference does it make? Oh, what a great story you say. Wow, you could spin that one. That's just wonderful, but so what? What difference does it make? Here's what difference it makes. The difference is the Word is the one and only There is nothing like him anywhere or ever will be. The word is not just a word spoken. The word is not just a prophetic revelation. The word is not just a miracle worker. My goodness, there were all kinds of miracle workers all throughout the Old Testament and the New. Some of them on the side of good and some of them on the side of evil God is not trying to communicate to us that Jesus was a miracle worker. He's not trying to communicate to us that Jesus was somehow a divine prophet. He was all of those things. But he wasn't that. He's the one and only of God. The Word made flesh. And if he is the one and only of God... And if he is who the scriptures say he is. The reality of the word being the creator and sustainer of all things. The reality of the word having life in himself. It means this. For those who know and love the word. They enter into the life of God through the word. Because of the word. And there is no life without him. Oh yes, we breathe and we move and we go about and we speculate and we pontificate, but there's no life without the Word. Every breath you breathe is a gift from the Word. Every thought you have is there because of the divine Word. Every happiness and joy in your life is the result of the presence of the divine Word. Every experience of deep life is because of the Word. He's the one and only. There's no one like Him. No, not one. That's one thing that matters. There's something else. Why does it matter? Because the Alpha and the Omega, a phrase used in the New Testament, the beginning and the end, the one who bookends all of history and stands outside it, the transcendent being, the Word, the one and the only, the beginning and the end, the eternal one of God. When that eternal one of God invaded time and space, in the Incarnation, my friends, this is a study. Eternity began to define the middle, the life that we call human. That human life is not just human anymore because of the Incarnate Word. History is not just a cycle of meaningless events. When you look into the eyes of humanity, you're looking into the image of God because the Word became flesh. It brings meaning to life in a way that nothing else does. No idea brings that meaning. Only the presence of the eternal Word brings that meaning that's why it makes a difference why else does it make a difference because God was not just once a human but because God is now with us There is a strange, mysterious sense in which the God revealed in Jesus Christ never left. (laughs) Oh, He did. We got the story of the Ascension. But there's a mysterious sense in which He never left. The body of Christ is a reflection of the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit ministers concerning Jesus Christ. Everything about Jesus Christ's presence is alive and well now. Which means, my friends, that incarnate Christ, who understood our weaknesses because he has them, now understands our weaknesses because he is them. He's in it with us. The one who struggled mightily with temptation and yet without sin didn't just struggle in 30 AD. He is with us in the struggle right here, right now. That is the present incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's with us. He not only sympathizes, but he walks with us. Hand in hand. There's a fourth reason it matters. Because his resurrection is our eternal life. Or to use the words of John again, Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, Death is not the last chapter in the book of humanity. Because I live, death has been conquered. And life will be completely restored. Not just in your body, but in all of creation. That's why it matters that the word became flesh. Here's what John's saying. I want to put words in his mouth a little bit. He's saying, what I want you to understand, my friends, is that when you read any of the Gospels, mine or theirs, this is what it's about. When you read anything about the life and the teachings of Jesus, this is what it's about. The Word became flesh. I'm a witness to this, John says later. I saw the Word in the flesh. What a great privilege he seems to feel that he had. And he might also put it this way. I've seen behind the curtain. Because I walked with the Word in the flesh. And I watched him heal a man born blind. He pulled back the curtain in that moment and said, Here's eternity. No blindness. When I saw him heal a lame man who couldn't walk, he pulled back the curtain and he said, look inside there. This is a sign. John called them signs, not miracles. This is a sign of the coming kingdom of God. Look inside there. That's eternity. John said, I have seen this and it's true. I tell you it's true. And then you know what he does? He writes an epilogue called the book of Revelation, in mysterious language with dragons and beasts and weird characters. And at the end of it all, he basically says, I'll tell you what the whole book is about. The whole book is about this. God is going to conquer all evil and sin and death finally through Jesus Christ and restore everything and make it new. It's behind the curtain, my friends. I gave you pictures of it. Just pictures that keep you going Because it is a reality. And why is it a reality? Because the Word became flesh. For you and me, on any given day in the news, or maybe in our life, It looks like hate is winning. But because the Word became flesh, love is going to conquer hate. You might look inside yourself and you might see sin that's unconquered and habits that so easily beset you that they stumble you and make you fall on your face in spite of yourself day after day. Because the Word became flesh, sin has been conquered, and the righteousness of God is yours in spite of yourself. And when it seems that death always wins. Remember this, the Word became flesh and because it did, life is going to conquer death. My son is um, big into movies, it's what he studied in college and it's what he studied in graduate school in England, he loves movies. But he also loves ideas. And it occurred to me while reflecting on this passage, he has a passion to try to make movies something more than just fantasy, but something compelling, almost a word, if you will. But for the most part, this is not a criticism, just a description. For the most part, a movie is a fantasy, isn't it? Right? That's why we love those action heroes on the big screen now. They left the comic book pages and they actually move. That's why we like the person who finds the criminal and brings justice. That's why we like the love story. It always turns out right. When I walk into a movie, the world is closed out. Do you ever notice that? Inside a theater, there's only one thing. It's the big screen. When the big screen starts, unless you're sitting beside somebody you love and squeezing their hand and saying, how about that? When the big screen movie starts, you're in the screen. The whole world recedes. Call it a fantasy. Call it a romance. Whatever you want, you're there. You move into a reality and that's why you love it. But maybe I'm strange and I think too much. But I'm also always so disappointed when I leave the theater and there's the parking lot and the same car I drove up in. Like, back to reality. (laughs) Put gas in the car, make sure the heating is paid. On and on and on. When I'm in a movie, I'm in fantasy. (laughs) But my friends, glimpses of grace, and you all have them, Moments of divine presence. Deep understanding of life. Which can be so powerful and so momentary and then gone. That is not a fantasy, John would say. That experience of grace is a reality. When you enter that reality... You must tell yourself that what you now experience is the way things not only ought to be, but the way things, at least in part, are. And in the end, will be. For instance, when you have those moments... Surely you've had them, where you've been so overcome by the grace of Jesus Christ that you literally love instead of hate, when you have every reason to hate. That's the Word made flesh. It's a moment of grace. When you have those times where instead of experiencing bitterness, you actually experience, even if momentarily, peace and forgiveness. When in those moments, out of chaos, somehow in the middle of it all, you have a sense of perfect order, it's a moment of grace. It's not a fantasy. It's the way things will be. When you have understanding. I guess this one gets to me more than anything else. Because I get so tired of having understanding. I get so tired of getting it. And in that moment, I think, I've got it. I understand how to live, I've got this thing figured out, I know I can do it, and then I fall flat on my face, forgetting what I really did understand. Often it happens in worship, right here. When you have a deep understanding concerning reality and the meaning of life and all the things that you would call Christian, it's a moment of grace that, my friends, is not a fantasy. It's reality. That's true reality. And one day it'll be complete. And in those moments, I know you've had these, where everything around you would make you terrified and anxious and fearful. Instead of that, you have... You have faith. Faith in God. That He's going to take care of everything. You included. My friend, that's a moment of grace. It's not fantasy, it's reality. Enjoy it, it'll pass away but it'll come back. When it returns, rejoice concerning its presence once again and continue to follow the Lord, the Word made flesh, who has got the end of the story already written and what seems like fantasy will be reality. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's here. Walk with him. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's purely stunning. But more than that, it's Remarkably transformative and practical. And so much of the time, Lord, we, we believe it. But we don't put wheels on it. Our faith is kind of like a car that doesn't move. But Lord, you want us to take that which we deeply believe incorporated into our lives in such a way that the word made flesh dwelling among us creates action in our life creates forgiveness and peace and order and love and Lord we thank you for those times where it is so real like the whole world seeds and all we experience for a few moments is the delight of grace make us not like self-centered spoiled children who demand more and more and more of it all the time but make us grown up adults who say thank you Lord now I can walk with you a little more by faith And I can trust with absolute certainty that one day this faith will be reality. This we thank you for in the name of Christ, the incarnate Word. In whose name we pray. Amen.